0: I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, if you look uh, in your pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1037. I'm sure we've all received... um, Invitations to various things. We had an invitation to Matt's graduation here this morning. I didn't plan on that, but it just kind of happened. Birthday parties, receptions, weddings. A crucial part of the invitation is making it clear to what you are being invited. It also matters who is giving the invitation. So I want you to imagine you got a card in the mail that simply told you to go to a certain address on a certain date. That would be confusing at best, ominous at worst. It would almost read as more of a threat than an inv- invitation. You know, meet me at blank on blank. Why? Who Who is inviting me and why do you want me to go to this place? An invitation is only good if it makes clear what is being promised. That's why invitations typically make those things clear. You are Cordially invited to the wedding of blank. Please join us for a reception in honor of blank, or come to the graduation of blank, and so on. In other words, we're not inviting you to a field where we're going to kidnap you or harm you in any way. We're inviting you to come celebrate something, come drink some punch and eat some cake with us, that kind of thing. This morning, we're going to hear Jesus give a far better invitation than that. No offense to weddings and receptions and graduations. Um, we're going to hear Jesus give us a far better invitation than anything that we could invite one another to. And as we read, I want you to be listening for the promise that accompanies His invitation to us. So let's read together in Matthew 11. We'll begin in verse 28. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all who labor... And are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the invitation and for the promise we hear in these Your words. I pray that You would help us to hear them afresh this morning, that You would help us to hear this invitation as an invitation to us, and this promise as a promise to us. God, give us ears to hear what You would have to say to us, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking here for an invitation and a promise. The invitation can be summarized in three words come to me. That's what Jesus invites us to do. He invites us to come to him. Now, on one level, that is an exceedingly arrogant thing to say unless he is who he claims to be, unless he is God in the flesh. Jesus does not say, go to Moses or listen to the prophets. He says, come to me. That is his invitation to whomever will listen and respond. So the invitation can be summed up in three words, come to me, and the promise can be summarized in five words, I will give you rest. This is really important. The invitation is not come to me after you've completed all your labors. The command is simply come to him as we are, weary and heavy laden. Come to me in the midst of your labor, in the midst of your burden, and I will give you rest. So the question that is begging to be answered in this passage is, rest from what? What kind of rest is He promising us? What does He mean when He says, I will give you rest? He clarifies in verse 29 that He means primarily rest for your souls. The the invitation to come to Jesus is not an invitation to Quit your job, kick up your feet, and be a couch potato the rest of your life. It's an invitation to spiritual rest, which comes about as a result of taking the yoke of Jesus upon yourself. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So when you take the yoke of Jesus upon you, you find rest for your soul. That is seemingly contradictory, but it's, it's not. He's using a metaphor to describe his teaching. Notice how he places the command in verse 29, learn from me alongside the command, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Those aren't two different things, those are two ways of saying the same thing. Elsewhere, Jesus describes the yoke that the Pharisees and the religious leaders laid on the people. He says in Matthew 23 verse 4, "...they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders." So in other words, the religious leaders of Jesus' day made it really complicated to be right with God. They had this complex system of traditions and teachings that went beyond what God Himself had said in Scripture. They were laying on people a burden that they could not possibly bear, a burden that God had not laid on them. On the other hand, Jesus says in verse 30, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what is it that He's talking about here? I think we get a clue to this in John six twenty nine, when some people came to Jesus and said, What is the work that God requires of us? And He said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's what God requires of us that we trust in Jesus. That's the work God requires. The work He requires is not necessarily a work. It is faith in Christ. Now, that's not easy to do. But it is easy to understand. When He says, my yoke is easy, I don't take Him to mean that It's easy to trust in me and to surrender your life to me. I take him to mean this is not that complicated. You do not need a degree in theology to be right with God. Put your trust in the one whom God has sent and God will receive you as his own. That's what he means when he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the promise that he will give rest to those who come to him means that he will give them rest from every attempt to earn their way to God. He will give them rest from guilt, rest from condemnation, rest from distress. As I was reading and meditating on uh, this invitation and promise this week, I kept thinking about how do we square what Jesus says here in these verses with what we read elsewhere in the Bible about what the Christian life is like. There are lots of ways that the Bible describes the Christian life. I'll give you a few examples. The Christian life is like running a race. Hebrews 12, "...let us run with endurance the race that is set before us." Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the Christian life is likened to running a race. The Christian life is also likened to hard work. Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. We toil and strive because we have our hopes set on a living God. So the Christian life is like running a race. It's like hard work. It's also likened to a fight, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. He says in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And in 2 Timothy 2, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So the Christian life requires discipline, endurance, hard work, striving, serving, and so on. On the other hand... The Christian life is described as abiding in Christ, as taking shelter, taking refuge in Him. And as Jesus says here in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. These two kinds of analogies, one of them says rest and abide and take shelter in Jesus. The other one says you have to run and fight and work and discipline yourself and train yourself and serve and lay down your life. Those two kinds of analogies are not at odds with one another. They don't contradict one another at all. It's only by abiding in Christ that we can run the race set before us and train ourselves for godliness. It's only by sheltering in Christ that we can fight the good fight in the whole armor of God. In fact, that's part of what it means to put on the whole armor of God is to be sheltered in Christ. It's only by resting from our attempts to earn our salvation that we can work out the salvation that God's working in us. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. He says, We toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. So we toil and strive because our hope is set on the living God. We we don't work, we don't toil and strive in hopes that our toiling and striving will cause the living God to take note of us, but because our hope is already firmly set on Him. So when you put all those analogies and images together, what you have is a description of the Christian life that sounds like this. That we have to strive to rest in Christ. Because our natural tendency is to think that this somehow depends on me. So I have to do this. I have to earn this. I have to attain this. But we have to strive to place our trust in Christ and to rest in Him. That's what Jesus means when He commanded His disciples to abide in Him. For a a branch to abide in the vine means that the branch has to hold on to the vine. It has to cling to the vine, but it does so knowing that the vine is holding on to the branch as well. And the vine is unfailing in His power and unwavering in His love. And so even when we're clinging and sometimes our grip loosens, His grip never loosens on us. Of course, for everyone, there has to be a decisive coming to Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, there was a time in your life when you came to Jesus definitively. You turned from sin and you turned to Him in faith. Jesus describes that as being grafted into the true vine. But even after someone has come to Jesus in a saving way, even if you are a follower of Jesus, even if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, you still have to strive Continually to abide in Him. You still have to choose continually to rest in Him from all efforts to justify yourself. You still have to strive continually to find in Him the resources that you need to run the race, to fight the good fight, and to endure in godliness. And so, to help us ponder how we might properly respond to Jesus' invitation and promise. I want us to do something a little bit unusual. Never done this before. I want you to grab your hymnal. You can put your Bible aside if you want. You can leave it open if you want. But we're going to open our hymnal to number 435, Just As I Am. We're going to spend a few moments <clears throat> reflecting on this hymn as an exercise in how we might respond to Jesus Promise and his invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, just to give you a little background before we look at the hymn, the song was written in 1836 by a woman named Charlotte Elliott. When she was 32 years old, she was stricken with an illness that left her partially disabled, and for the rest of her life, She struggled physically with many ailments, and she struggled mentally with feelings of depression, and and she often wrote about feeling useless to God. She felt like there was nothing that she had done that was any use to God, and yet here we are about to read her words um, nearly 200 years later. In fact, the hymn, Just As I Am, was originally included in a hymnal that she edited called The Invalid's Hymn Book. And I want you to What I want us to do this morning is to take note of the complexity of emotions that she describes in this song. I have a really complicated history with this song because, like many of you, I'm sure I grew up with... um, only ever associating this hymn with The Invitation, the the song we sing at the end of the service. And I vividly have this memory. Uh, I don't remember if it was a revival or just some kind of special service, but I remember this one evening service at our church when I was growing up. I don't remember exactly how old I was. But um, whoever was preaching that night just kind of kept... The invitation going and going and going and going, and it felt like we sang this song like ten times in a row. And so, from that point on, just, I've had enough of just as I am. And it took me a few years to come back around to it. I'm thankful um, that one of the upshots of that is I can to this day remember much of this song, and uh, I often sing it to one of our boys at uh, at bedtime, and and so its words have grown more and more. Dear to me over the years. So I want us to kind of glance over some of these words here and take note of the complexity of emotions that are described. There are, there are first of all, lots of feelings expressed of, of guilt and corruption and weakness and spiritual poverty in the second verse, just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. She, she feels a, a dark blot on her soul. In the fourth verse, just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. So these are all ways that the Bible describes us, poor, wretched, blind, apart from God's grace in Christ. In the fifth verse, she speaks of her need for pardon and cleansing. So there are, there are these uh, threads that run through of, of, of guilt and, and uh, corruption and spiritual poverty there are also themes of uh, fear and doubt and conflict and weakness. The third verse, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without. So this is a person who is, is, is in turmoil and distressed because of both an internal conflict and because of external conflict, there are things, there are circumstances happening that are causing turmoil. But also within me, there are fightings within, there are fears and um, and conflict and doubts. And in the fifth verse, she speaks of Jesus' willingness to relieve. You will receive welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve. So the common denominator among all those feelings is the thought that I need to be accepted by Jesus just as I am. The hymn admits that I don't deserve acceptance. The song begins, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee. In other words, the only hope. I have of coming to Jesus and being accepted by Him is that He shed His blood for me and that He bids me come. So there is an acknowledgement in this hymn of the invitation that we read about in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And the hymn also acknowledges Jesus' promise to give rest. The fourth verse states it most clearly. Just as I am... Wait, that's not... The fifth verse, I should say. The fifth verse. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Now, I especially want you to notice the punctuation in the fifth verse because it's really important. There's a period before the word because. If you take that period out, you totally misread. And sometimes when we sing songs, Um, we don't punctuate them rightly in our mind. And so it's good to sort of pay attention to that. The, The verse is not saying that Jesus will receive, welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve me because I believe His promise. No, it says He's given me His promise to receive, welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve. And because I believe that promise, I come to Him. So... That's how every verse of the song ends, with our response to that invitation, our response to His promise to receive, to welcome, to pardon, to cleanse, to relieve, to give us rest. The song is not about getting over those feelings of guilt or fear or conflict or weakness. It's about being honest with Jesus about those feelings and coming to Him in the midst of them. And what's so striking is when you read the Bible and you read people doing the very thing that Charlotte Elliott did in 1836, being honest with God about how they feel. The key is they're talking to God about it. They're, they're saying that to God, and, and that's what she's doing here. She's not, she's not going off on her own and just feeling sorry for herself about how she feels, but she's speaking to God, and she's saying, you have shed your blood for me. You bid me come to you, and so because of that I, I come, O Lamb of God. And so on and so forth. I was thinking and praying some last night and um, it, it, it hit me tomorrow is the beginning of Ramadan, which is the, the Muslim holy month. It's the month when all Muslims all over the world, from sunrise to sunset, they'll be fasting and trying to earn, their, earn favor with Allah Ramadan is kind of like a way of Muslims making up for all the bad stuff they did throughout the year, all the ways they felt throughout the year. They make up for it in that one month by fasting from sunrise to sunset. And I thought, how different are we if we really listen to what Jesus has said? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's the theme of this song, is that I come to Jesus not because I deserve to, but because He shed His blood for me. I come to Jesus not because I feel worthy, but because He invites me to come. I come to Jesus not because I'm clean, but because His blood can cleanse each spot. I come to Jesus not because I'm free of all fear and doubt and conflict, but because He promises to welcome me and to relieve me in the midst of all those things. I come to Jesus not because I have something to offer Him, but because I find all I need in Him. I come to Jesus not because of how I feel, but because I believe His promise. And there are times when what we believe and what we feel don't line up. And so in those moments, we have to act not on the basis of how we feel, but on the basis of what, how we believe and what we know to be true because of what He said in His Word. This song is, is not only a song that we can sing at the beginning of our walk with Christ, but it's a song we can sing all the way through because there's never going to be a time this side of heaven when we won't feel the guilt of our sin. There's never going to be a time this side of heaven when we won't feel the fears and the conflicts that she describes in this hymn. And so this is a song that we can sing not only at the beginning of our walk, but all the way through. And just a couple weeks ago, I was, I was reading um, about some of the origins of this hymn. And uh, something I read that i had never in my life heard before because of just the tradition in which I grew up is that Charlotte Elliott wrote this song, not necessarily as an invitation um, to someone who has not yet believed, but she wrote this song with the intention of it being sung at the Lord's Supper for believers to sing this song as they come to the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. And so I thought we might do that today, that we might... um, as we take the Lord's Supper, confess the truth of this song, because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. So here's what I want us to do. Um, We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment, but first we're going to sing this song, all six verses. And as we sing it, I want you to make this song your own. So do what the song invites you to do, which is to be honest with God, whether about your feelings of Guilt or corruption or weakness or fear or doubt or conflict, sing it like you mean it. So, so whatever it is that sticks out to you, take that and sing that to the Lord as your own words. And after you've confessed those feelings, look to Jesus and do what the song invites you to do. O Lamb of God, I come. So let me pray for us and uh, Chad's going to come and then we'll sing this and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Lord, I pray... Um, uh, we thank you, Lord, for the invitation we hear from your son, Jesus. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would now help us to respond to this invitation by coming to the Lamb of God. Help us, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to, to receive the bread and the cup. Lord, that you would, um, that, God, that you would help us to um, discern the body and blood of Jesus in it. And, uh, God, that in this time we would look to Him in faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 435.